Super Talk Mississippi media production. And now it's Coast View with he's Ricky Matthews. Brought to you by HEJ Systems and Networks he's on, on the Radio 103.1 FM. to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day celebrates the men and women who are making coastal Mississippi such an amazing place to live, work, and play. This week, we're celebrating the two-year anniversary of, of Coast View. Uh, View, incidentally, VUE, the visual perception of a region. Just thought it fit perfectly to what the tone and uh, goals of this show were all about. Tomorrow, got Kyle and I are going to take the first part of the show and just reflect a little bit on the on the past year. It's been an it's been a heck of a journey, and we really appreciate appreciate you joining us every day to to celebrate and learn like like Kyle and I have learned, and we'll reflect on how much we've learned tomorrow. Hey, we've got a great guest today. We're going to be talking with Gerald Blessy, a visionary, former mayor of Biloxi, a prominent local uh, a lawyer. But before we do, I wanted to share something with you. I was going through some of my uh, I get a bunch of newsletters every day. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised to learn that based on the fact that I came from the media industry, was a publisher for most for the latter part of my career for sure, and had uh, tremendous responsibilities in digital media in the later part of my career. Um, and I've, you know, I'm a follower of what's happening in the world. And so I'm very interested in looking back now as Gallup and Pew and other research organizations begin to sort of capture the changing mood in America. You know what? You know what's? How has the pandemic changed things? How has the political environment changed things? And uh, you know, I'll share a few things with you as we go through this. But I just I thought it was interesting uh, this particular finding. And you know, personally, as a Catholic, as someone who has a strong belief in God, it's interesting to see the changing moods in America as it relates to to religion. And I, I wanted to share, there, I, I'm going to, the first part I'm going to share with you comes from uh, the Gallup poll, and then I'm going to share a little extension of that that came from the uh, Pew study. But it said this, partly because of younger generations shift away from religion, the percentage of Americans who reported being a member of a church, synagogue, or mosque fell to a record low, 47% according to the 2021 Gallup report. This finding represents the first time in Gallup's trend since, since the 1930s that less than half of U.S. adults have claimed such membership. Now, that's membership in an organ, that's membership in a church. Now, there are a lot of people who have a strong belief in God that aren't actually a member of a church. So I wanted to understand, you know, what, what, what's underneath that? And the Pew Studies I think got us to that. And here's what the Pew study said. About three in 10 Americans are religiously unaffiliated, a 10% rise from a decade ago, according to the survey. And the survey was conducted between May and August of 2021. Currently, 29% of U.S. adults are religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, you know, as in no religion. Uh, those who describe themselves as atheists, at agnostic, ag agnostics, or nothing in particular. By comparison, 16% described themselves in this way when the center first asked this question in 2007. So 16% in 2007, 29% uh, this past year. Christians continue to make up the majority of the U.S. population, which is 63%. 
but that share is 12 points lower in 2021 than it was in 2011. Christians now outnumber religious nuns by a ratio of a little more than two to one. But in 2007, that number was more like five to one. That's pretty incredible, actually. Um, it'll be interesting to see what impacts that has in America as we go forward. Um, you know, from where I'm sitting, you know, maybe not a great trend, but we'll see. Uh, another interesting uh, point that I want to point out, too, from the Gallup study is this. At the same time, 36% of Americans express, uh, uh, excuse me, only 36% of Americans express, express trust in media, which is the second lowest on record. The Americans who have positive ratings are the, are the four uh, media-related industries, computer, internet, publishing, television, radio sectors, only 36%. Now, think about that for a minute. That means everyone else doesn't trust the media. And, of course, I spent a lifetime, in, uh, just about a lifetime, in, in the media industry. And so I'm not surprised by that finding based on what we're seeing with cable news these days, what's happened just generally. And then when you think about the rise in news and false news on social media and how that's being spread with uh, advanced artificial intelligence, I'm not, a, I'm, not, I'm not surprised that we're seeing that number fall dramatically. Um, so anyway, let's shift gears and let's move over to my friend, Gerald Blessy. We're going to cover a wide range of discussion of topics today. As I mentioned, he's a prominent uh, coast uh, attorney. He's a former mayor of Biloxi. I've often referred to him as a visionary because he is. He's extremely well read. Um, and uh, anyway, we're going to – Bonnie Carey, by the way, is one of the major topics we'll talk a little bit about here shortly. But before we go any further, let me just welcome Gerald to uh, Coast View. How you doing, my friend? Doing great, Ricky. Thank good you. good to see you. Um, boy, you're not surprised by that number on the trust in media, are you? No, not really, although I think it reflects the decline in trust in many institutions based on the complexity of our modern life. There is a media, though, that apparently wasn't in the poll, and that is people media, which is historically and traditionally the most important source of all information. And so hopefully uh, we'll all speak more to each other in friendly ways and try to share information that maybe we feel we aren't getting the whole picture from media. The other thing is uh, trusting in the media kind of depends on definitions, doesn't it, Ricky? I mean, some media are more trustworthy than others based on our own belief system. So anyway, it's an interesting poll, and it is uh, – uh, I mean, you mentioned about the, the, the uh, decline in affiliation with particular religious denominations, um, which is another indication of, some, of concern about trust in institutions, disappointments. On the other hand, I think this nation is still very spiritually uh, grounded in, in, uh, in Judeo-Christian Judeo Western civilization moral basis, but... Uh, I think there's uh, some disappointment about uh, leaders and institutions really delivering on their promises. Yeah, that cuts across so many, uh, just a broad section section of, of uh, institutions. You know, I've had a I've had a growing concern, and we won't we won't go into great detail about that today. But I just mentioned it a few minutes ago. I think when social media came about. And and they have certain protections, you know, that publishers, you know, publishers aren't don't have protections. We had to be responsible for the content we disseminated. And as you know, 
big tech has protections, so they don't have to be responsible, even though obviously their actions these days suggest that they are more responsible and they're trying to do their best. But the fact is, when you have advanced artificial intelligence deciding what our news feeds are, it's hard to sort through it. Whatever whatever work that they do to try to you know bolster a more uh, truthful environment from a news distribution point of view is more anecdotal than anything. It's just you know when you think about the billions of pieces of information that are being driven across social media every day, it's pretty amazing, really. And 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 it will be interesting to see long term. As uh, more regulation comes to big tech, you know how do they how do they grapple with that? Because their business model doesn't support what we had at the Sun Herald or what other other uh, responsible news organizations have. We have layers of editors who are making sure, or at least trying to make sure, that the that the information that's being published is uh, is is you know as as true as possible and corroborated. One one of the things that that um, I've mentioned before is that. What, what social media did is they created this ad delivery tool, which is really, when you think about it as an ad delivery tool, it is absolutely brilliant. And that is by gathering all these bits of data that we agreed to give them when we get on their social media sites, um, they are able to know a lot about us, where we go, what our likes and dislikes are, et cetera. Uh, and then they're able to send a very, very micro-targeted ads directly to us. And that's really kind of brilliant. But along the way, they decided they'd use that same technology to decide what our news feeds are going to be. And what that means then, if we have a sort of a far right or far left th thought about things, or maybe we're in a camp of people that are just believing in everything that's completely false, um, if we're in that area and that's what we're focused on and that's what our interests are, what the, what the artificial intelligence does is it sends us more information like that. So what it makes it appear is that everyone in our news feeds agrees with us. That's really not a good place to be. That's not from a democratic point of view. That's not a good place to be. From a society point of view, that's not a good place to be. I think they're going to have to wrestle with that. I, I, I do think that traditional media has their challenges, but when you add it, when you sort of press that up against big tech and what's happening in the social media realm these days, um, it kind of you know the, the 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 challenges of of traditional media pales in comparison to what what. You know, big tech has, has has created for us in terms of this this uh, tiger by the tail that we're now holding. I think we're going to have to come to grips with it because it's having a, an unparalleled impact on democracy and societies around the world. I don't know if you read much about it or pay much attention to it, but uh, do you have any growing concerns about that? Well, I think all reasonable people are paying a lot of attention to it. Um, the we've been here before, though, Ricky. Um, in the founding of this nation, when the First Amendment was adopted, there were hundreds and hundreds of different partisan newspapers and pamphlets, and and the magic of the Constitution and the founding fathers' the system set up was that out of that great broad spectrum of differences of opinions, uh, if people in a civilized manner would talk to each other and say, "Well, here's what I saw in my." newspaper and uh, and they say what they saw in theirs just fast forward to today that's the same thing on cable news subscribe hey, Jared, for free to the coast view podcast right on, on itunes on google podcast spotify or wherever you get your podcast on the other side see you after this break talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live 
This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. We have Gerald Blessy. He's a prominent local uh, attorney. He's done does work for the city of Biloxi, but a wide range of work. He's a visionary, the former mayor of Biloxi, someone who I've had a lot of respect for for many, many years. And we were talking about the fact that 36% of Americans actually express trust in media. That means the rest of, of America doesn't. And uh, he was you know, talking about going back to the founding fathers and the fact that there have always been some challenges around media. Probably today they're more significant. But when, when we went to break, he was beginning to talk about the evolution of cable. And why don't you pick it up from there, uh, Gerald? Well, I think the important thing is that citizens talk to each other regardless of their news source. Uh, I mean, if we if we, uh, we have mutual respect, that's the most important polling number that we should look at is at least with strangers and with friends, you know, sharing our thoughts and, and talking it through with mutual respect and not demonizing the other side because they watch a different uh, cable news. And, and with, with that kind of uh, fundamental civic action, I think that's the cure to so much of the problems with artificial intelligence and the whole uh, advertising uh, attention uh, sales business method that that they have. You know, I mean, when attention is currency, then, then yeah. um, sometimes truth goes out the window because human nature, you know, will react more quickly to um, uh, really dramatic things that uh, or, or that appear to be dramatic and and so what the problem we have I think is that uh, we, we've lost a lot of the local coverage uh, because of the decline of, of newspapers which in my view is unfortunate but but you do have a lot of local coverage in, in by choice uh, among your friends I mean there are podcasts there are all kinds of things just like what you're doing, Ricky. So I think that going back to the founding fathers of the great check and balance, you know, on on uh, misstatements is the common law of libel and slander, which, as you mentioned, the cable companies are not considered publishers, so they're not responsible for harmful things to other people. Now, it's not just that part, but it would be helpful, I think, to bring back more of the of the traditional centuries-old check and balance of of libel and slander about untruth and misrepresentation. The problem, though, is bigger because it's the contest of ideas between what one person thinks is true and another person thinks is true in terms of public policy. That's where I think it's so important to have live, open public meetings and debates. I mean, the other thing is to clan, you know, is public hearings. So many people want to go into executive session or not even have a meeting at all and just make decisions. And here it is. And, uh, and, and you know, there's so much we can talk about on this level. But I just think uh, more gatherings where people meet in, in a responsible uh, mutual respect for discussion, not just in classrooms, but in civic actions. I mean, you know, we still have fortunately locally a lot of civic clubs and you can have a speaker and question and answers. That's what we need more of if we're going to weather this uh, storm of misinformation and disinformation. Alberto Bargan always, always, you know, the the, the president of the, of the Knight Foundation always pushed really hard on the point that what we need is 
a way to disseminate unbiased, truthful news and information locally. He, he believed he, he believed that there's too much noise on the national stage to begin to even sort through it, that the, that the real democracy happens locally and that people need to get the information they need and then they can make the choices that they want to make. You know, I remember just coming back to one point you made about this whole notion of a civil discussion. And I remember when we first started having that at sunherald.com commenting, and man, we we had teams of people that were trying to moderate the commenting so that you know civility was maintained, and and then we had we had a third party vendor that we hired, and you know one thing led to another. But we were always really focused on on making sure that there was you know there were community rules that needed to be followed, and that people followed those rules, and if they didn't, they were kicked off. But then of course social media comes along, and the moderating kind of goes away, and now. You know what we what we learned back in those days is that people, when they were sort of in their bedroom, not having to look someone in the face, are much will, more willing to say something to them that they're not going to say to them if they're actually looking at them in the face. Or social media has taken all of that and put it on steroids. And I wish that you know I'm a, I'm afraid that the 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 genie's kind of out of the out of the um, you know out of the 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 what what do you, how do you say what's the phrase genie out of the bottle. Um, and that it's going to be hard to put the genie back uh, because the, we're in this different place today. And oftentimes civility doesn't rule. And that's a, that's a sad place to be when we're talking about public discourse. Certainly on the national stage, I don't even know how to begin to sort through that. But locally, and, and again, I think that's one of the reasons Coast View has gotten some traction is because it gives people an opportunity to understand what it takes to make a community tick. It takes so many different dimensions working together simultaneously focused on trying to you know improve the situation and uh and trying to get to the the nut of the right information so that we can make good decisions at the end of the day that's what we're trying to do you know i'll give you the last word on that and then we'll sh shift gears and talk about your work with the city these days any any final thought on that well you know i'm a fellow catholic like you and you recall you know vatican ii and Pope John the 23rd and on forward, the whole ecumenical movement, that is talking with other people of other religions, sharing with other Christian denominations their views and talking it through and it develops mutual respect. I'd like to see the churches do more of that today. I think it would help, you know, in terms of ethical and moral analysis of public policy. My, my son Justin's up in New York and lives in New York City and he um, as a member of the Catholic Church there. He's very, very good Catholic, but he's also a member of a, of a non-denominational non group. So people from all over the world have come together. And, and, he, and man, he just shared some incredible stories about their conversations with one another. That's sort of what you're talking about. Right. Really smart people that have come to the city and, and they, you know, they might be Baptist or Methodist or you know, Muslim or whatever it might be, and right. but they're coming together as a group so they can get to know each other's diversity of thoughts and they're learning so much from one another. And it's great to see Justin engaged in that kind of conversation, but I, we should certainly do more of that. that. That is for sure. Okay, so let's shift gears. Um, we're come to the Bonacary Spillway here shortly, but you've been engaged with the city of Biloxi. You've been working on a number of different projects there. Um, you know, give, give us a sense of the work that you're doing these days. Well, right now, I'm pretty much concentrated on Tidelands litigation with the city. We're involved in three pieces of uh, litigation right now with the Secretary of State, who 
continues to have uh, a radical view of the law, trying to reverse the Tidelands Law uh, of 150 years, almost 200 years. But the courts, and hopefully those will be in the Supreme, two of them in the Supreme Court in Mississippi now, and the third one is in a trial that will resume in February. The other thing I've been doing for the city is really a special counsel to head up the Mississippi Sound Coalition, and uh, and that's to try to protect the Mississippi Sound from the kind of algae bloom that happened from the Bonnie Carey Spillway in 2019, and it is a huge, huge long-term challenge because that bloom occurred, Ricky, as you know, because of the what was in the water. It wasn't just the fresh water that was changing the salinity that killed the oysters. It was the nitrates and phosphate phosphates that were coming from <clears throat> from uh, fertilizers and, and animal manure from pig farms and so forth, all up and down the Mississippi Basin, which is 31 states, and that's all coming down the Mississippi River. Uh, when there is a release, like at Bonnie Carey, it comes into concentrating and on over. It went all the way to Mobile Bay and had this algae bloom because there's the nutrients for algae. That's it was food for algae, and of course it became toxic. Uh, when there's no opening, it just keeps going down the mouth of Mississippi, and we have a dead zone out in the Gulf. And so my great fear at my age is uh, is leaving whatever I can do to try to turn that around because without it, the Mississippi Sound will be dead in another generation or two, and it's going to be hard to bring it back. And that whole Gulf is headed that way. In fact, it's just a colossal example of the inability of man to tamper with God's creation. So, I mean, the more we can do, I'm reminded of E.O. Wilson, who just died a few, a few days ago, you know, the great biologist from uh, he grew up on the coast. He's from the Florida Panhandle and Mobile Bay and so forth. Went to GCMA, by the way, uh, uh, the Gulf Coast Military Academy right here in Harrison County. Well, he formed what's called the Half-Earth Society. And his, his thought is, well, we still have chance to save half of the Earth for biological diversity if we really work on it. Most of it has to be things like what Nature Conservancy and others are doing, preserving, buying up land. But we as a people need to understand that without that, you know, we, we're really, this pandemic is an example of what happens when you ignore the ecosystems in which we live with wild animals. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation as it relates to the Mississippi Sound and the efforts that Gerald Blessie's involved in. It's not just about the Bonnie Carey Spillway, although that was sort of the uh, you know the the tip of the tip of the spear, but uh, it's much more complicated than that, and the solution much more complicated than that. So, when we come back, we'll get into a more detailed conversation about where we are as it relates to all of that uh, uh, here shortly. We'll see you after this break. It's Coast View with Ricky Matthews. Brought to you by AGJ Systems and Networks on Super Talk 103.1 FM. Welcome back to Coast View. We've got uh, my longtime friend, Gerald Blessy, someone who I respect as not only a visionary, but a quite accomplished lawyer and someone who has incredible passion for the Mississippi Sound. You know, when we talk about the Bonnie Carey Spillway, I mentioned it as sort of the tip of the spear because what happened in 2019 with two simultaneous 
um, openings. It, it created the algae bloom. But this is not a problem that just suddenly appeared. This is a problem that has been, I don't know, simmering for quite some time. And I, I think that what happened in 2019 did create the coalition. It did create more energy around the legal maneuvers. That talk, it created more focus on the Corps of Engineers and who they're accountable to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're in this place where we've got, we got at least some focused energy around what the possible solutions might be that could help us protect the Mississippi Sound. But this, you know, before we get into what some of those things are, it's hard to do in an environment where our leaders have so many conflicting objectives happening simultaneously. How do we get the focus on this the way we need to? Public education as much as possible, like, like this show and hopefully hundreds of others, uh, uh, you, you know, you're right. The Bonnie Carey algae bloom in 2019 was a wake-up call for what had been going on for many, many decades. That is, man's alteration, mankind, our society, right here on the coast, altering the shoreline and the marshes. When I authored the Coastal Wetlands Protection Act in the legislature in 1973, it was because about 5% of the marshes per year were being filled in by real estate developments for residences, which is clearly not what the Tidelands law is for. And so that was designed to slow down that and try to reverse that. It's been somewhat successful, but it's just an example. I mean, Ricky, when I was growing up, I'm a little older than you, uh, before the sand beach was pumped in, we had a seawall and I could walk down, I grew up in Holly Street in East Biloxi and, and I could walk down to the seawall and, and to the little beach outside that and you know you could you could throw a cast net and you could have supper right there with one net and you could you could throw a chicken neck on a string and catch a dozen crabs almost immediately and so i mean it was so plentiful and what happened to the mississippi sound is accumulation it, the ecosystem has dram uh, dramatically declined i mean lewis Cometa will tell you you know about the dolphin population reduction as will mobile silange part of that is because of loss of food. And one of the reasons we've lost so much food is because they have pokey boats out there taking so much of their food, which is the, the sardines that they eat. That's pogies, you know? I mean, uh, not that that's, I mean, that's a business in itself and we understand that, but but we really don't realize what, what happens here. Then the grass beds. We had grass beds all the way from from uh, the shore to, to Ship Island. And now they're almost gone. And, and, and that wasn't the Bonnie Carey that did it, although it made it worse. It's our own runoff and pollution from city streets. When every time your car leaks oil onto a city street and it goes out through those uh, uh, pipes into the Mississippi Sound, it's putting hydrocarbons in there that are not naturally supposed to be there and that's causing problems. I mean, it's just accumulation of things. How do we solve it? People have to come to grips. We all have to understand if we want to preserve our way of life, we must study these things. We must be serious and we must expect our elected officials to be able to walk and chew gum. You know, we've got to do more than one thing at a time. We have a tendency in public policy to react to the urgent, to the acute problem, just like we do in healthcare. You have a heart attack, everybody's worried about it, but preventing heart attacks are much harder. Preventing them can be done. And and so I'm using that comparison, the whole sound and, and our ecosystems here, which depend upon the marshland, I feel back bays and all the rivers and all of that 
you've got pollution going from our, it's not just coming from Iowa, it's coming from the Pearl River all the way down and the Jordan River and the Biloxi River. So we got to think about that. There's one other thing, and I know this may be like heresy, but it, it really isn't. The seawall and the sand beach did away with a natural shoreline, which was contributing a great deal of the natural nutrients that would go into the Mississippi Sound. Seawall was 1926, 1950s, early 50s with the sand beach. And if you'll, if you'll look like when you, you know, Arster Bio there at Beauvoir is a great example. It's preserved. If you look at what it was, it was a little eco, uh, estuarine ecosystem there and it goes out and you still have a, 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 uh, uh, a, a what do they call it? The, the, the pipe that goes out into the, yeah, yeah, into yeah, the sound, the drainage pipe. If you look at that, every time I drive by it, there's a heron or a crane out there at the end waiting for small pieces of bait to come down that little oyster bio. That used to be a marsh, you know, and it can be restored. We have 26 miles of sand beach. We don't need every bit of it to be pristine white sand. You know, restoring those kinds of, of things step by step would be a wise Thing, it would also encourage more ecotourism, not to mention fishing. Shore fishing is a lot of fun and people still do it, but it's been declining. I'm speaking to a fisherman now, of course, who sports fishermen. Yeah. Okay. I'll get off my soapbox. But, you know, I, but I agree. You know, I think, I think coming back to the openings of the Bonacary Spillway in 2019, the losses were more than $200 million just in seafood alone. And your numbers may be different than that, but it was very significant. And I recalled of a, so of a tourism, guy, by the way, tourism yeah. was hurt by the perception, if nothing else, and also big time, big the time. beaches. So when you multiply that with the fisheries tragedy, it's really closer to a half a billion. But go ahead. Well, there's a powerful lubrication to change that comes from pain. And we were feeling a lot of pain. And as you pointed out, it's like getting, we had the heart attack. We've gone to the emergency room. They, they, their treatment of the situation at the moment was to shut the spillway. So once the, shield, the spillway shut, the Mississippi Sound, not completely, but to some extent has been very resilient and had, has somewhat bounced back. But, but, but the point you're making is that the cumulative effect of doing this when you take the cumulative effect of all the other things that are happening simultaneously, that the long-term proposition for the Mississippi Sound is not very good. And we better, if we don't get focused on it, that's why you talk about our way of life. Our way of life is centered around the Mississippi Sound, the semi-enclosed body of water that was never meant to have the entire contents of 31 states emptied into it over a prolonged period of time. That is but, not a good situation. By the way, Ricky, uh, excuse me for interrupting, but before we go off this topic, there is another proposal we have that's the Mississippi Sound and Lake Train Protection Act, which is a piece of legislation the federal government, our congressman could adopt. We've asked him to, no one's introduced it yet. Uh, it's It would be for Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Mobile Bay, as well as and it's patterned after the Grand Canyon Protection Act, which was done some three decades ago, maybe before then, when upstream on the Colorado River, people were putting stuff that was gonna basically ruin the water flow all the way through the Grand Canyon. And, and so the, the point I'm making is that our congressional delegation needs to pay attention. It's not just local and state, it's not just the Mississippi River. 
and we have a congressional campaign going on right now. And I haven't seen any of our candidates in any party or any independent say that this is important enough for them to introduce a bill like that. We've written it. Uh, Robert Weigel, our, our lead counsel for the coalition from great environmental lawyer from Ocean Springs, uh, uh, and I wrote it, and uh, we'd like to see that tool picked up. What would it do? It would require, before any government really does dramatic changes to the Mississippi Sound, they have to at least study the alternatives. What's so wrong with that? What, you know, and, and prove that you're not going to do more harm than good before you do it. What have you learned? Remind people what you've learned about how hard it will be to find alternative solutions to the, to the need to open the Bonnie Carey Spillway. Well, of course, the Mississippi River and Tributaries project, which began after the 1927 Great Flood, is still going on. And they're still building and changing. And it is hugely complicated. I really don't have the expertise by myself, nor does anyone probably, to give a complete solution. What I do think is we've got a lot of smart people, a lot of people with good intentions in the Corps of Engineers and in all the universities and in uh, you name it, all these institutions, but we need a format at the federal level as they did in the 19, after the 1927 flood to say, we're not gonna pass this buck to the Corps of Engineers. We need a commission that's going to report back somewhat like the Marshall Plan for rebuilding Europe. It's to do this, you're going to have to deal with the floodplains in the Missouri River Valley and in the Ohio Valley and Red River Valley. I mean, it's enormous. And I'm not sure whether tickering around with structures is going to make as much difference as changing what how the water gets there to begin with. So uh, it, that's my, my thought is let's get a lot of smart people together and give them the money to study it and come back with some recommendations. We're talking about the Mississippi Sound with Gerald Blessy, prominent local lawyer who's uh, obviously got a huge passion for the, for the subject. And who, who shouldn't have a huge passion for the subject when you consider the Mississippi Sound literally is our way of life here in coastal Mississippi. So when we come back, we'll talk about what, how he sort of views where the the effort goes from here we'll see after this uh, after this break you can also listen live to super talk mississippi gulf coast 103.1 on your amazon alexa devices once you've enabled the skill just say alexa open super talk mississippi gulf coast this is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have Gerald Blessy, uh, who is a, a local lawyer who's deeply, deeply engaged in conversations about the Mississippi Sound, about actions of the Corps of Engineers, the Bonnie Carey Spillway. In fact, during the break, Kyle brought up the Morganza Spillway. And let's remind people, the reason we have these spillways to begin with that are stationed along the Mississippi River are sort of 
you know, when, when we have huge floods north, it's to protect the city of New Orleans. And, and by the way, no one believes, no one engaged in these conversations believes that New Orleans should be allowed to go underwater. The question is, what's the best approach that can also protect the Mississippi Sound? And it's super complex. Currently, though, by law, they're not required to, to monitor or to be aware of any impact on the Mississippi Sound. And that actually plays into some of their decision making. But, but, but Gerald, let's, let's come back. Talk about the Morganza for a second and its relationship to the Bonnie Carey and laws that are in place that may want to understand what's happening on the Louisiana side, but not necessarily on the Mississippi side. It's just so complex. Well, Morganza, of course, is one of a number of structures, the old river control structures above that. And then you have others below New Orleans, the Bonnie Carey, you have levees all over the place. And that's part of the equation. It's uh, uh, the engineers and scientists who've been looking at this for years, of course, uh, there are some differences of opinions about when something should be opened and not. Uh, it, it, of course, we all want to preserve New Orleans, no question, but there, there are other preservation problems too. For instance, if you're not careful and you open Marganza and it breaks down and you can't control the river and it changes course and goes to the Atchafalaya and that becomes the new Mississippi, which can happen, that's disaster for everybody. And so, I mean, there's a measurement of what you can do and when you can do it. The, the law in 1927, when they, when they formed the Mississippi River Tributaries project for the Corps to manage the river more so, it already was, but it, it gave them new charges. Uh, structures like Morganza were built to try to help modulate you know, when things would be open or not. And there's a standard about when you you must open it at a certain level, just like the Bonnie Carey. What we want a new EIS to do is to have them study is that, well, not just when you must open, but what if you open it sooner and close it sooner in relation to the others? I mean, we think that, for instance, in 2019, had they opened the Morganza some early and relieved the pressure on the Bonnie Carey, the Bonnie Carey could have closed sooner New Orleans would not be flooded either way, and we wouldn't have had the algae bloom because it was the warm months when we still were open, Marganza never opened, that uh, we had this toxic algae bloom. Now, one of the problems though is that if you clean up the water, you still have fresh water that has got to go somewhere. That problem has not been solved. And it's and uh, you, you, we're going to have to have the Morganza be part of the equation, but also the diversions below Morganza that they're planning at Mid Mid Breton Sound and Barataria Sound, also the old river structures above that and the structures above that and the levee system. I mean, it is it's amazing, you know. Uh, the uh, if you dig the river deeper, you know, and have the water more volume of water flowing, you got more water flowing faster downstream. It hits a curve, it's going faster, so it can scar out the levee. I mean, it is a complicated system. And I look, I'm not an expert on it. I've read a lot about it. But we, there are a lot of people who have spent a lot of time studying, and we need to have them in a process that is not adversarial, not in lawsuits. We don't think lawsuits are the answer. Lawsuits that we've got are simply to say, please go study this. They can yeah. do that tomorrow without a lawsuit if the Congress would make them do it. And I believe that's important that a federal delegations in both of our state, all three of our states, and all 31 states should say, look, we can't keep kicking the can down. 
we can't keep punting this. There is going to be a flood, project flood, they call it, which I think is like 3 million cubic feet per second. That's going to happen. It almost happened in the 50s, by the way. And it has almost happened since then. The prediction for rain in the upper Midwest for the next 15 years is a lot more rain than we've had in the last 15 years. Think about that. That's not even counting the snow melt coming off the Rockies and all these other things. We had better pay attention to this, we being the United States of America and all of our congressional delegations, not fighting one state against another or one group against another or farmers against fishermen, but saying, look, we have done bold things before in this country. We're the greatest country in the world. Why are we exceptional? Because when we get together, we make things good things happen. Let's look at this and treat it like the Marshall Plan that restored Europe after World War II. I mean, think about it. You know, we can do it too, right here in our own heartland. It seems like a really, really rational and valid um, step to just say, let's study the hell out of it. Let's understand the ramifications of each of the decisions that we make and start to really reflect on certain improvements that we can make in the flood control program and how it could affect positively. And then fund uh, those improvements Sound. too, by the way. You got to fund improvements. And also fund yes. those improvements. For instance, yes. some of it may be restoring floodplains in the Midwest that have been dammed up and all kinds of things have happened to it. I'm not talking about taking it away. You, if you if you have to do it by eminent domain, you should pay for it, of course. Yeah. No one should suffer from this. I'm not saying that that the farmers and in, in, uh and the pig factories in the, in the Midwest uh, should bear the whole brunt of cleaning up their their, their water. I mean, we, we've done that, you know, with municipal sewage. The EPA paid for most of those plants. Anyway, what we have here, we have to marry thought with action. We have to think like people of action and act like people of thought. That's what we need to do. It flows downstream, and by the time it gets to the Mississippi Sound and, and situations when they have to open the, the Bonacary Spillway, man, does it make a big impact. And and we and it's, we can't solve it alone. It's going to take a, a, literally a, a national effort to solve this problem. Hey, we weren't going to solve it all in this this conversation, but <laughs> Gerald, I just wanted to get it back on the on the forefront yeah. and have a conversation with you and get the latest. I appreciate you taking a few minutes to join us today. Enjoyed it. Ricky, thank you. It's been a pleasure. This has been Gerald Blessy, the former mayor of Biloxi, someone who's incredibly passionate about the Mississippi Sound, and we all should be passionate about the Mississippi Sound. Have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow. Follow Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.